Luke chapter 4, we're uh, in a journey through the gospel of Luke, calling it the doctor's cure. Luke was a physician, um, but the cure really wasn't his. It was the uh, ultimate, the great physician, Jesus, uh, whose cure he writes about. When I was a, a, a pretty young dad, I actually lived right up the road here about a mile. I'm one of the f- odd pastors that uh, uh, pastors in the shadow of his uh, hometown. And we had a man who um, rented a shop, a garage area right across the street from us, had a wood shop there. And uh, this was 30-some years ago. <clears throat> Went to bed one night and um, late at night, it might have been midnight or after, we heard um, this man out in, in the driveway, um, clearly drunk, um, saying all kinds of crazy things. So we heard these sounds. I went up to the window and looked out, and I saw him down there um, saying some wild stuff and watched for a little while. Then I told Betty, I'm going to get dressed. I'm going to go down. Went across the road, and um, his landlord was already there. And uh, he was just saying wild things. He was saying threatening things. And then he'd waffle between that and and weeping. He was a a Vietnam vet. And all of that stuff was coming to the surface as well. And uh, in the early part of the conversation, when I was over there, landlord was um, indicating to me that there was a place of concern that he had. Apparently, this man kept trying to go to, he had an office there and he had a bed there. He slept overnight sometimes and it was a cluttered mess and he kept trying to get past the landlord to this spot. And so while he um, diverted his attention at one point, I went and checked and sure enough, there was a pistol under, under some um, junk there. And so while he continued to divert him, I took the pistol, I went across the street and much to my wife's chagrin, put the gun in our bedroom uh, under the bed um, and went back over and was there probably till 5.30 in the morning. We're just talking with him and uh, listening to him and talking with him and he's starting to sober up a little and so I went back home. Several days later, he came and knocked on my door and uh, he was sober now, but the conversation was very weird. Uh, he waffled. First of all, he apologized for what had taken place, uh, but also was threatening. Um, I didn't, his words were kind of disjointed. His sentences confusing. He said something like, um, I love your family, Keith, but I don't be here when, and then he was unclear about what was going to happen next. I was probably uh, foolish enough in my youth not to be a, personally afraid of him, but I was afraid for my family. We had two children at the time and wondered, what do I, what do, I do when, when I think there's danger to my family? Do, do, I, do I go out and buy a pistol? Do I just keep the doors locked all the time? Do I put a house up for, this, for sale? What, what do we do when uh, we think that we're in danger? And you can think about that in your own life, things that you have seen as threats to you. How do I respond to them? How do I think? That's where, that's where the response begins. How do I think about this danger? And then in light of what I'm thinking, what do I do next? And this morning we're going to talk about this idea of fear when it comes to Satan, 
our adversary, the devil, the tempter, the accuser of the brothers, Belial, Beelzebub, the many uh, labels in which the scripture gives him. And we're going to read about Jesus' encounter with Satan in the wilderness and use that to kind of help think through how we uh, go up against him and also see what actually was accomplished by Jesus on that particular battlefield as well as later in the war that, uh, uh, where he won on the cross. So Luke chapter 4, let me read this for us, first 13 verses, and then we'll pray and uh, talk about it. Luke 4.1, then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, let me just stop there a minute. Mark is even more explicit. Mark 1.12 says that, that the Holy Spirit compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness. In other words, this wasn't some sort of blunder in Jesus' part that he, he was out for a walk one day. He ended up by chance out in the wilderness, and lo and behold, there's his adversary, Satan. No, no, no. This was very deliberate. This was very intentional. If you were here last year when we were working our way through the book of Job, you remember a discussion that we had about the Bible depicts specific incidents in which both God and Satan are intimately involved. If you remember the census that David took, one place in Scripture it says that God incited David to do the census, which was a, a lack of faith issue and his trust in the military uh, establishment, it was a lack of faith in God. And in another place, about that same incident, it says that Satan incited David to take a census. You could say the same thing about the, uh, the death of Jesus Christ. Satan entered into Judas to betray Jesus. And yet the scripture, especially in the book of Acts, looks back on that incident and says, this was God's plan all along. And the same thing is happening here. The Holy Spirit has a plan for Jesus. Satan has a plan for Jesus as well. It kind of coalesces in this encounter. But the key thing that we have to remember is that God has an entirely different purpose for you when he brings you into difficult situations than Satan has for you. Satan's intent is to destroy and God's intent is to deploy. Satan tempts you, God tests you. God does not tempt anyone, but he does test all of us. Satan's not looking for, de- for you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, which is what testing will do for us if we let it. He's looking to destroy you. God has a totally different agenda for you. Let's continue verse 2 where he he was led by the uh, spirit into the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. There's Luke, the master of understatement. Then the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I'll give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I'll give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you see a pattern developing here? The scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. 
Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, and now he's using Jesus' ploy against him, he will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. Fathers, um, we hear your word this morning. May it not simply be as an old story, but as an across the historical breadth of time and space, a declaration that all that exists is yours. All that exists is yours. And even this rebellious angel cannot thwart your plans. And that's as true in our lives as it was in your son's life. That he has no power, this enemy of ours, that we do not give him. That he cannot do anything to us that has not first been passed through your hand. The hand of the one who loves us with an everlasting love, the exclamation point of which is the cross. And I pray for against the enemy this morning and for the work of the Holy Spirit so that this, rather than a message of discouragement, might be one of encouragement and great hope. And I pray that you would speak through me, Lord, and when necessary, in spite of me, and that you might be glorified and we might be encouraged in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's talk a little bit about the identity of this opponent of Jesus. Who was he? As I said, he was an angel. That means he was created by God back somewhere in Genesis chapter 1. It's not specifically identified, but we know that by Genesis 2-1, everything that was created had been created. So somewhere in Genesis 1, the angelic host was created, and they were created to serve God and his agenda, his purposes. The scriptures tell us in Hebrews uh, that these angels are now ministering spirits to those of us who will inherit salvation. That means that you are ministered to by beings that you cannot see, hear, taste, smell, touch, anything else on a day-to-day basis, which I don't know about you, but that's, that's really exciting for me. Sometimes I forget about that, that there is this vast host roaming the world serving God's purposes, and serving the people of God. Now, Satan was one of these angels, and he apparently, uh, Ezekiel 28 seems to give a picture of Satan. Not all theologians agree with that, but I think it's uh, best uh, portrayed as, uh, as a picture of Satan's early um, operation and agenda, that he was created to be a special angel, a high um, Uh, leadership rank angel to serve God. He was beautiful. He was wise. And all of that went to his head. And in his pride, he rebelled against God. Now that rebellion, according to Revelation 12, seems to to have corralled about a third of the angels. Talks about stars in that passage, but that's a word that's often used in scripture to refer to angels. 
He took about a third of the angels with him. They rebelled against God. And Isaiah uh, 14 tells us that he was determined to make, take, replace God on the throne. He said, I would become like the most high. That didn't go real well for him. He miscalculated, and he and his rebel band of angels were cast out of heaven. They're now called demons, but they are nonetheless an angels. And their time is coming where they will be judged and, and cast into the, the fires. The Bible says that hell was never designed for people. It was designed for the devil and his angels. Nonetheless, between now and that time, this angel is on the loose with his demonic horde. Now, what does that mean for us? Let me just say a couple of things. First of all, I know that in today's climate, it is, it is seen as superstitious to believe that there's actually a personification of evil on, on the loose in the world. About a week and a half ago, Dr. Elaine Pagels uh, gave an address at Stanford University entitled Satan, How a Fictional Being Still Shadows Our Views of Gender, Race, and Politics. Dr. Pagels is a, a scholar who has been deeply involved in the translation of non-biblical ancient texts like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas. And she writes that, the devil, that Satan is a fictional being. C.S. Lewis in his book... Um, Screw tape letters says the devil is just as happy if you don't believe that he exists as if you believe that he exists and you're really interested in his work. Why? If you, for example, uh, come to me and tell me that there, an enemy of mine has targeted my house and my family on a particular night and that I should be uh, wary and on guard and I don't believe you, I create a, an easy path for my enemy to come and do the things that he has planned to do to me. And so by not believing in the devil, if you don't, you create a very vulnerable path for yourself because none of us are going to be on guard against that which we do not believe exists. Now the Bible tells us not to be afraid of the enemy. I think there's... Uh, Time and again, when the scripture speaks about Satan, there is a, a wariness that we should have, but never a, a, a fearing of Satan. But he does say, the scriptures do say that we should be on guard. Let me take you to one passage, 1 Peter 5, 8. <clears throat> There's another passage in scripture. I don't have that down, but it says that we are not unaware of his schemes. Let, let me ask you if that's true of you. Are you informed enough biblically about the enemy of your souls that you know how he's going to oppose you? You know how he's going to go after you. You know how he's going to try to defeat you. And Peter says, verse 8, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy. Doesn't say be afraid of him, but watch out for your great enemy, he, uh, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So keeping our guard up absolutely crucial. How do we do that? Let's look about how Jesus fought this battle with his opponent. Uh, first of all, think about Jesus' battle prep. He knew, he apparently knew he was going into this. He fasted for 40 days. I, I don't think if I knew I was going mano a mano with the uh, archangel of the universe, God's greatest enemy, 
I don't think I would have done what he did. You think about a soldier going into battle, you want to have the best gear you can, the best bulletproof armor, and you want to have the best uh, weapons that you can possibly get your hands on. I know back in the years of the Iraq war, uh, family members were actually buying um, uh, non-military issued armor for their loved ones who were going into battle because it was superior than what was being provided by the military. Why? Because if you're gonna go in and face bullets, you wanna have the best armor you possibly can. Jesus went in with like nothing. He had no friends with him, he had no family, there's no emotional support. I mean, isn't it true we can do an awful lot of things face an awful lot of difficulties if we have people surrounding us who are undergirding us with prayer, who who we know are in our corner and encouraging us and saying, we're standing with you. Jesus had none of that. He's out in the wilderness with nobody, no emotional support, no physical support, no physical strength, 40 days without food. How many of you, I'm serious about this, anybody here has ever fasted 40 days? I've... I'd, I've wanted to. <laughs> I've never gotten beyond three days. And I get to the third day, and you know, it's like all I can think about, this is the last day. Potato chips. <laughs> hamburgers. Even healthy food sounds good to me at that point. <laughs> and the only reason that I don't gorge after three days of fasting is because of the horrible things it does to my body, and I know better. But if I could, I would. Now, there is a time when you're fasting where food starts to lose its appeal and it diminishes over time, and I understand that people who've done 40-day fast say at some point you, you don't you don't have that kind of deep hunger anymore. And the, the clarity of the mind is, is so much greater. And, and there is a spiritual dimension to fasting. The Bible, the Bible is, admonishes us to fast, but is careful about its admonishment. John Piper in his excellent book on fasting called A Hunger for God, first words in that book are, beware of books on fasting. Because it can become a thing of spiritual pride. It it can become a thing uh, where the focus is not on seeing God in my fasting, but but, uh, seeing what I can accomplish and so forth. So Jesus goes in without without any emotional strength. He goes out, he goes in with what we would say, no physical strength. You need food to handle the kinds of of onslaught that he's going to handle. He didn't, didn't have any of that. Now, there's something I think is important for us to understand about what, went, what occurred on that day of this testing. Uh, turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We looked at this passage uh, frequently because it's so foundational to understanding the identity of Jesus. But I want you to see it in a little different light this morning. Hebrews 4, 15. It says, this high priest, talking about Jesus, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. Why? For he faced all of the same testings we do, yet did not sin. Now, I don't think the writer here was thinking exclusively about the temptation of Jesus with Satan in the wilderness, but I think he was thinking primarily about it. If that's the case, do you understand how 
we would have to appreciate that Jesus faced this temptation. I think the problem when we look at something like this, we say, oh, Jesus was God. This was no big deal for him. Listen, if Jesus faced this temptation as God primarily, then it was really, there's no way that we could say he was tempted just like we are. I mean, God doesn't need to eat. When we get glorified bodies and leave this life, we're not going to need to eat. Now, Revelation pictures trees growing on the sides of the river coming out of the center of the city of the New Jerusalem and their fruit on those trees. And I think we will eat, but we will eat by choice. We will eat for pleasure, not because we need to eat to live. God in his heaven does not need to eat. So if Jesus comes down here and goes through this kind of temptation as, as God, like, I don't really, I'm not really all that hungry. Then what Satan started out with him, turn these stones into, into bread. Couldn't really be say, said to be similar to the kind of temptations that we have. Jesus faced his temptations as a man as a human being and you can tell that by the weakness that he experienced in the wake of this temptation one of the other accounts in scripture says that after satan left him angels came and attended to him why he was spent he was shot physically emotionally spiritually every way he was at the end of his tether now mark this you you can win over this enemy too you, you can win over this enemy. Jesus fought this battle in part for you. He fought the whole war for you. But he fought battles like these for you as well. Now let's look at Satan's battle tactics against Jesus. How did he fight Jesus? If you wrote, go through the scriptures, you see a number of things that Satan does and is capable of doing. One is that he is sometimes behind illness. We see this woman that comes to Jesus for healing. She's stooped over, and and Jesus says that Satan has kept her in bondage all these years. I don't think most sickness he's behind. Now, I think it's perfectly appropriate that when you have a sickness, you should explore that and rebuke the enemy But I don't think if you have a sickness that goes on and on and on that you should now conclude, oh, there's some sin in my life and the enemy's exploiting that and using that in my life if there's nothing the Holy Spirit's bringing to to your mind. I think the vast majority of sickness is not. The enemy loves to get credit for things that he's not responsible for. He's just fine with that. But we do see that in Scripture. That's one thing he does. Jesus called him a murderer in John 8. uh, So we know that he's behind things like shedding innocent blood Um, we know that that he is is a liar. I think that's the key issue. The Bible describes him as a deceiver. And here's, here's here's the main formula that I think Satan uses on you and I. And that is that he deceives and tempts. He deceives us and tempts us. And those two go hand in hand. He, in deceiving us, he tempts us to do something which displeases God. Go back to Genesis 3, right? Satan in Genesis 3 uh, comes to Eve and says, did God say, did he really say X? And Eve said, well, no, he didn't exactly say X, but he did say something like that. He said, we can't eat the fruit of this particular tree because when we do, we're going to die. And Satan says, 
You are not going to die. That's just not true. What's that? Deception. He says, you're not going to die. What's really going on is, is, is God doesn't want you to eat fruit of that tree because you're going to become wise like he is, and God does not want any competition. What happens? So the deception leads to the temptation, and now Eve succumbs to the temptation. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. It looks like it's going to taste good, and oh, I can get wise with it. And this is exactly how Satan works on your life and my life. He is going to con you. <clears throat> let me just, let me go here. I'm going to just step off the side where I'm going for a minute um, to reinforce my conviction that Satan cannot read your mind and he cannot plant thoughts in them. Now, I know not everybody disagrees with me on that. I'm not convinced by anything in Scripture that he uh, can do that. Uh, First of all, the scriptures seem to say clearly that only God knows everything, and it would seem like Satan would have omniscience if, capabilities if he could read your mind and if he could plant thoughts in them. However, Satan knows you better than you know you. He is a superb student of you, and he knows just how to push your buttons. He knows just how to trip your triggers. He knows the kinds of influence that certain people have in your life. And things they say make you think, oh, well, maybe I should do this instead of this. They, he knows how, what kind of uh, circumstances that you're exposed to, how you tend to react to them. And whether you go off in an angry tirade, he's deceiving you so that he might tempt you, so that you might do that which displeases God. That's his goal. His goal is to have you believe that God does not have your best interests at heart and what you know he desires, you're not sure you want to do. That was the whole issue with, with Eve. He was convincing Eve, Satan was convincing Eve that God really did not have her best interests at heart. And this is how all of these things that, that we become susceptible to in sinning about, all these things are ultimately idols. Because we believe that if we pursue them, they will, they will treat us better than God will treat us. That they have, have our best interests in heart much more than God does. When God says no to this, and we want to say yes to it, we are embracing something else as our God and worshiping that. Was there anything wrong with Jesus had he taken a couple of the stones in the Palestinian desert and turned them into bread? Anything wrong with that? Jesus was not opposed to food. I mean, good grief, we had a couple of times where he has thousands, literally thousands and thousands of people coming out to hear him preach, and they're staying so long, they're getting hungry, they don't have food along, there's no McDonald's nearby. And he creates food. These people, we need to feed these people, tells these disciples. They go, we don't have any food around here. Well, get what you have and I'll make more. Jesus loved to go to, to parties and dinners with people like Levi and sit down and enjoy a great meal. Was there anything evil in him making bread for himself in and of itself? No. And yet, uh, Jesus understood that there was a much bigger 
There were much bigger issues at stake. When Satan tells you, why don't you do this, we should go, hmm, would that glorify God? Would that bring me closer to him? And Jesus made his point. Now, the scripture says that people don't live by bread alone. That, that's not what sustains them. It may keep them alive physically for a season, but that's not what really sustains who they are, sustains their identity, their, their pers- personhood, who they are in God's eyes. It's, it's more than bread. Yeah, that would take care of a need at the moment, but we need more than that. Satan, you know that better than anyone else. And then he t- asks him, if he wouldn't just worship him and then he'd turn over all the kingdoms of the earth to him. Interesting question about whether that was a bona fide offer or not. There's some things in the scripture that seem to point that that Satan does have uh, a measure of control over the nations. 1 John 5, 19 says that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And yet the picture in scripture is clearly of a sovereign God who has Satan on his leash. Forget which theologian it was. It might have been Augustine who said that, spoke about Satan as God's Satan. He can only do what God permits. Whether he did or not, the whole issue that Satan was after was not kingdom exchange. It, it was worship exchange. Won't you worship me? And make no mistake about it, as we said, all the things that Satan deceives you about, me about, and tempts you and I in, it is all about getting us to worship something else. And ultimately, anything else that we worship serves as worshiping Satan. He's happy to have us worship money. He's happy to have us worship power. He's happy to have us worship sex. He's happy to have us worship leisure. He's happy to have us worship anything other than God. Because in effect, by doing that, we worship the enemy. And then he takes Jesus to the high temple. And if we have the location correct on the temple, that spot was about 45 stories above the Kidron Valley. If Jesus would have jumped off of there, it would have been a messy splat. Satan says, just jump off there. By the way, don't your scriptures say that the angel prote- angels of God will protect you? It, Satan had an interesting collection of things that he was tempting Jesus with. One was comfort. I mean, after 40 days of no food, food's going to taste really good. Comfort. I don't know about you, but comfort is probably one of my premier temptations. I just, I just want to be comfortable. I want to be able to sit and relax. I want to be, I want to be able to have things that make me feel comfortable. I want to be with people that I feel comfortable with. Comfort. I was, I was listening to the brother that's uh, coming in April uh, to talk to us for our missions conference. He was at. LBC's mission conference a uh, week before last. And he stood up there and, and he said, my greatest craving is comfort. This is a man who's 
working with internationals up in New York City and has kind of lives a Spartan life from my point of view. And, and he's impassioned about going out and sharing the gospel in the streets of New York City. I'm like, you? Comfort? Yeah. We Americans love comfort. And he went from comfort to command. I, I, I'll let you command all these nations. And then from command to you can be a charismatic figure. I mean, just think about how the people will flock to see you and hear you if you jump off a high building and you survive. You'll make it in all the papers. You'll be the latest, you know, the crawler across the bottom of the TV screens. Guy jumps off the top of the temple and lives. Tell about it. It'd be interesting for you to sit down and really kind of think through the things that you realize you're most vulnerable to when it comes to temptations and see if any of them fit into general categories like these. One thing Satan is not. He's not creative. He is a duplicator par excellence. He doesn't come up with great new ideas. He's not an innovator. He sticks with what works. What works in your life? What temptations work for you and why do they work for you? Now let me give you three reasons that I think if you're a Christian, you do not need to be afraid of Satan. Let me take you to a couple of scriptures here. First John chapter three. There's a little uh, problem that you have today, and that is that my clock in the back doesn't work. It looks like I still have like an hour. <laughs> First John chapter 3, verse 8. Middle of the verse. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. How did he do that? All right, let's take, to, take you to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son, Christ, also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. In other words, the, the, the initial reason that you should not be afraid of Satan, that you should not fear him, is because Jesus Christ has broken his power. Amen? He hasn't just um, put it behind a screen. He hasn't just bent his power. He's broken Satan's power. That's the reason at Romans 6, in Romans 6, Paul can speak about the power of sin being broken in your life when you come to faith in Christ. You no longer have to sin. So, here, three points for you who are followers of Jesus, and then I have a couple comments for you who are not. Number one, reason you don't have to be afraid, is that a loving father, your loving father, permits what comes your way including Satan's deceptions and temptations. 
Do you remember what I said why that is, though? God is determined to make you the most stalwart, powerful, mighty, well-grounded, Christ-loving, Christ-following, gospel-sharing Christian you can possibly be. And that doesn't come without training, coaching, and being built up. That's going to require moving you from the little two, three-pound barbells to the big stuff and all the pain that goes with it. You could be afraid of Satan if all this stuff is coming your way and God's standing up there watching saying, wow, I wish that hadn't happened. Boy, I didn't, didn't figure on that. But when everything that, that he, remember when we were looking at Job, everything had to go through God's hands first. This is, no, you can't do this to Job, but you can do this to Job. You can't do this to Keith, but you can do this to Keith. You say, God, why would you let bad things happen to me? Because I care more about you than your momentary comfort. I care about you being an effective disciple in this world for the good of other people and for my glory. So everything is going to come through his hands. That means that you have the power to defeat it because of this. This is my second point. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in your life. That means you're stronger than Satan. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. 1 John 4, verse 4. But you, you belong to God, my dear children. You have, already have, you have already won a victory over those people. Um, the, those people that he's talking about are the people who, are, who have the spirit of Antichrist. In other words, who are following Satan's will. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. That means the Holy Spirit that comes in to live with you in your life when you trust Christ is greater, is more mighty than this spirit who is opposing you and battling you in the world. You have more muscle. You've got more resources. You've got better armor. You've got better weaponry than he does. Don't need to be afraid. So that means if you are tempted to be harsh with your employee, you're like, that's just who I am. No. And, and, and listen, the, I think the enemy is behind, I, I think he's probably behind every temptation to sin in some big or small way. And when we use excuses like, okay, um, uh, I get angry, that's just my nature. I get angry, that's my personality. We have, we have agreed with the enemy that this is who we are and this is all we can do. And the scripture says that's not true. The scripture says when we receive deception and when we receive temptation, we have a choice to go with God or go against God, always, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That means if we are tempted to take a job that's going to pay us 60% more than we're currently making, and the Holy Spirit has been telling us through various ways, I don't want you to take that job, and our greed keeps pushing us and pushing us and pushing us to take that, it means we don't have to think we're foolish to say no to it. 
and we don't think we have to take it, we can say no to it because the spirit inside of us is greater than that temptation to, gr to greed and the deception in which Satan is telling us you'll be a happier man or woman if you're making 60% more than you're making right now. If you're a married man and you're flirting with that woman in the office and you're like, eh, my wife is not really meeting my needs and she doesn't listen to me and she doesn't smile at me the way Flo does. That's just, that's just baloney. You are buying Satan's deception that you might be it's the only reason you would flirt is kind of start something. That you might be happier with flow than your wife. That you might be happier to go against God's desire for you, to disobey him, to squander your family and squander this relationship that you should be investing in instead of pulling out of. Deception, temptation. Holy Spirit in you, I can beat this. More powerful. And lastly, third reason that we don't have to fear him is that because of the Bible, we have authoritative things to say to the enemy. I just love this. Every time, every time Satan goes after Jesus, Jesus comes right back with the word of God. If you are the son of God, do this. The scriptures say. If you are the son of God, do this. The scriptures say. Okay, well, the scriptures say this. No. You're distorting the word of God for your own purposes. The word of God also says, also says, you shall not tempt the Lord, test your Lord your God. Now, I want to say a couple of words to you if you're not a Christian. Because this message of don't fear Satan is for Christians. Unfortunately, I have no good news on that front for you when it comes to Satan. I want to read a verse for you out of Ephesians chapter 2. And I, I hope you hear this with the intent of my heart because I was once where you are. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And this text speaks about all of us who are Christians now who once were not. All of us who are followers of Jesus now, who once were not. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. Now it's talking about you if you're not a follower of Jesus. Just like the rest of the world, listen, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. That means you, my friend. There are no three kingdoms in the world. There's two. It's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the enemy. You're either in one or the other. And you should fear the enemy. The, the tragedy is that sometimes people who are not followers of Jesus Christ, if they know anything about the devil, if they believe he exists, they think that they're in cahoots with him. Make no mistake, the devil has no friends. 
The devil has nobody that he's happy with, that nobody that he wants to keep. He wants to destroy everyone, including those who do his will. So you should fear the devil. Now here's the good news. I do have some good news for you. The number one most often repeated command in the Bible is do not be afraid. More than any other command in the Bible, do not be afraid. There's another command in the Bible that's very frequent that the do not be afraid command depends on, and that is fear the Lord. Fear the Lord, not in a scary way that you're afraid what he's going to do to you, but in a worshipful way that brings you to the end of yourself and realize that you cannot be made right before God by yourself, that you, under his, you are under his condemnation and his wrath because of your sins. But God knows you can't fix that. And so he did the only thing he could do, and that is send his son to die for your sins. And if you would repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's what it means to fear God. And when you do that, you no longer need to fear anyone, including the enemy of your souls. At the end of the service today, we have folks up front here, like we always do, are available to pray with people about whatever needs in their life. And maybe you would want to talk to one of them today about this. They're very capable of talking to you about how to become a child of God through faith in Christ. I'll be here, glad to chat with you. There are a lot of people here who would relish the opportunity to try to answer your questions, not push you to do anything you don't want to do. But nothing matters more than this because by yourself, apart from Jesus Christ, you are especially vulnerable to this cosmic enemy travels all over this planet with his wicked horde seeking people to devour, to destroy. And God's desire is to rescue you from that. And he offered Jesus, who not only won a battle with Satan there in the wilderness, but ultimately won the war against Satan on a cross and the empty tomb he left behind. Father, thank you for the